Well, good morning, guys. Good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Last week, uh, if you're here, we uh, began a new series in the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about um, the Sermon on the Mount being some of the most famous yet most misunderstood words of Jesus. And I, what I tried to do for us last week is to set up or to frame our study in uh, Jesus' great sermon in Matthew 5-7 through 7 by talking about the main tension on the Sermon on the Mount um, not being uh, about the kingdom of God versus uh, kind of the evil kingdom of the world primarily, but rather the main tension that's in the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of the gospel versus the kingdom of religion. And so we said that um, every kingdom has a power, it has, or every kingdom has a pattern, a power, and a purpose, or an, and a product. <laughs> I can't even remember my own points. Um, it's going to be a really good sermon today, trust me. Um, and we said that the kingdom of the gospel and the kingdom of religion differ in all those ways. And the, the pattern of the kingdom of religion is that if I obey God, then God will love me. But the pattern of the gospel is that because God loves me, I can obey. And the power is different because religious motivation's power is fear and pride. But the gospel's motivation is unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace. And they have a, a wildly different product. Because the kingdom of religion produces arrogant, prideful, or, dis- or just people who are full of despair. But the gospel produces a humble, just like a humble, gracious gratitude and joy. This week as we uh, study the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see uh, a few of each parts of that. A few things about the pattern, a few things about the power, and a few things about the product. But this morning, what I want us to see primarily is that the pattern of the life of the kingdom as laid out in the Beatitudes is good news for those inside the kingdom and those outside the kingdom. See, it's good news not just for the citizens of God's kingdom, but it's good news for those who are yet to become citizens of God's kingdom. The Beatitudes are not a task list of spiritual disciplines that we just need to like start chugging away at and working on. But instead, they're a proclamation of blessing because they're a proclamation of what's true about those who are in the kingdom. But it's also an invitation to those who are not yet a part of the kingdom. So as we uh, study that, as we look at the Beatitudes, and as we're going to see three things uh, about the pattern of the kingdom that make it good news. We're going to see that the pattern of the kingdom is both present and future, that it's a reversal or an upending of the kingdom of religion and the kingdom of the world, and we're going to see that it radically changes the way that we relate to God and others. So let's read our passage, and we'll pray as we dig into God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. 
If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God, thank you uh, most of all for you, but thank you for your word. God, as uh, we seek to study it this morning and as I seek to proclaim the good news about it, God, I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. God, there's so much, uh, man, there's just so much to talk about this morning. God, help me know what to say and help me know how to proclaim the good news, that it might be good news to my heart and to our hearts, that it might accomplish what you set out for it to do. Pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, verse 1 in the passage talks about the audience that Jesus is talking to. And it's really important for us to just briefly set that up because um, understanding who Jesus is giving the sermon to, who he's addressing, that really changes how we hear the sermon. You see, verse 1 notes that there are two groups of people that Jesus saw the crowds, but the disciples came up to him and he began to teach them. So Jesus is addressing the disciples. He's addressing those who are already in the kingdom, those who are already part of his kingdom. But he's conscious of the great crowds who are curious about him, who are listening in on the sides. Martin Luther writes this, Christ is saying nothing in the Sermon on the Mount about how we become Christians, but only about the works and the fruit that no one can do unless they are already a Christian. The Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows, not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace upon those in whom he is working out such character. This is super important for us avoiding uh, the, the, the trap of religious thinking as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. It's super important because... Our hearts are so desperately prone towards religious thinking. If we forget that Jesus is talking to those who are already in the kingdom, those who are already loved, those who are already adopted, those who have already been pursued, then we'll be tempted to see the Beatitudes as a checklist of things that we just need to keep working on instead of the proclamation of blessing, the good news about what's already true of those who are in his kingdom. That's wildly different We must understand who Jesus is talking to. First, Jesus proclaims eight beatitudes. The word beatitudes, you're like, what is a beatitude? Um, A beatitude is just the the translation of the Greek word for blessing. And so uh, the engineers in the room may have counted nine, um, but there's actually eight. Verses uh, 11 and 12 are kind of uh, an expansion of the eighth beatitude in verse 10. But there's eight qualities, eight things that are true about those who are part of the kingdom. And all eight of the Beatitudes include a promise, you'll notice. But notice the promise in verse 3 and in verse 10, in the first and the eighth Beatitude. They say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of these promises are in the present But the other six Beatitudes are all different. Uh, Verse 4, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, for they shall be uh, satisfied. For they shall obtain mercy. For they shall see God. For they shall be called sons of God. All of the rest of the promises are future things. 
And it's here we find something really important about understanding the good news about the pattern of the kingdom is that the kingdom is both present and future. The kingdom is both already and not yet. It's kind of like the difference between uh, D-Day and V-Day in World War II. So um, D-Day took place June 6, 1944. The Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in France, and uh, for all intents and purposes, what the Allies did on that day sealed the fate of the war. The Axis forces were functionally defeated when D-Day happened, when the invasion of the beach, when that was landed, when that was finished. Yet, the total victory in Europe, the total victory of the war, didn't occur till almost a whole year later in May of 1945 when the German forces actually surrendered. Between D-Day and V-Day, the victory of the Allied forces had already been won in principle but it had not yet been manifested in actual fact. That captures how the New Testament and how the Sermon on the Mount talks about uh, the kingdom of God, that it is both present and future. See, D-Day for the kingdom took place when Jesus culminated his work in dying for us on the cross and in doing so defeated Satan's sin and death. But V-Day, the experience of that victory in its fullness, in its completion, that's not going to happen until Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom. So why is it good news that the kingdom is present and future? Well, uh, you may have read those Beatitudes and thought to yourself, I'm not sure all those things are true of me right now. I'm not really sure that I'm characterized by everything in that list. That kind of sounds like a pretty serious list. Um, And you're right, you're not. But the reality of the kingdom is present and future. And what Jesus is saying is that these things are true about how God sees you and they are true about who he is making you to be. They're true about how God sees you and they are true about who he is making you to be. So the disciples listening to the Beatitudes, the words are a celebration. Blessed, blessings, how fortunate, how incredibly blessed are you, those who are merciful and poor in spirit, those who are uh, seeking after righteousness, how blessed are you. But they're also a proclamation of the work of God in our lives to actually make us into the people he's declared us to be. We should all read the Beatitudes and think, I got a lot of room to grow in all those areas. But for those of us who are part of God's kingdom through faith in the gospel, we should always read the Beatitudes and be filled with a humble and grateful joy because the promises laid out for us are not contingent on our success in living them out. They're contingent on how well Jesus lived them out, and he did it perfectly on our behalf. See, D-Day of the kingdom begins the process by which the king begins making us into his likeness. And on V-Day, when he returns, we will consummate that and we will be like him. See, the pattern of the kingdom is good news because it's present and it's future. The second thing we think about the, the kingdom 
And why it's good news is that it reverses or upends the kingdom of religion and the world. Last week I talked about the primary tension being the contrast in the Sermon on the Mount between the kingdoms of religion and the gospel. But there's another kingdom that Jesus is also uh, opposed to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the primary concern, but it is there. And that's the kingdom of the world. So let's look at each of these uh, Beatitudes a little closer and see what Jesus is saying about what the pattern of life in the kingdom looks like and how it's different than that of religion in the world. Verse 3 begins, where those, uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? To be poor in spirit? What is it talking about? Well, um, it's really important to see how the Old Testament talks about that. And in the Old Testament, the word poor uh, started out meaning like actually poor. But over time, it gradually kind of morphed into under this understanding that the, because the needy had no refuge except for God, that poverty came to have spiritual overtones and came to be identified as a humble dependence on God. As one commentator writes, the poor man in the Old Testament is one who is both afflicted and unable to save himself and who therefore looks to God for salvation. So to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy before God. We sing a, a song here at River City Church called uh, the gospel is all I have. And, it, and the lyrics go something like this. It says, No well-kept secret, presentable, life to display. No courage, no virtuous, bold use of faith. No clever, persuasive words I could say. No debt I could work off. No bribe I could pay. No goodness, no promise of love that won't fade. The gospel is all I have. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to realize that we are desperately in need of God to rescue us. And there's no reason he should. We have nothing to offer him, no reason by which he should come for us. This is a reversal of the kingdom of religion. In the kingdom of religion, the beatitude might read something like this. Blessed are those who are middle class in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, because they've worked really hard and are owed something. Man, if we're honest, aren't our hearts tempted to think that way all the time? God, I've worked for you. I've served you. I've tried to obey really hard. Don't you owe me something, God? The passage says that we're to be poor in spirit, not middle class in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Jesus is not just talking about those who mourn the loss of someone or something, but he's talking about those who mourn over their sin. It's one thing to be poor in spirit and to acknowledge it, to acknowledge our need for God. And it's another thing to grieve the reason we need him. It's our own sin, it's our own rebellion, it's our own rejection of him. We're working on teaching Emma how to apologize. She gets lots of chances to learn that these days. Um, as the wise Becky Morrow once said, often kids need to learn the motion before they learn the motivation. We're not just trying to teach Emma that she should say that she's sorry for beating her brother with a train track. We're trying to instill in her that she should have actual sorrow for hurting her brother. She does not get that yet. See, Emma has worldly sorrow. She just feels bad, not because she hurt Caleb, but because she doesn't want to be in timeout. I think adults are a lot like that too. 
Most of the time, we're just sad about the consequences of our sinful attitudes, actions, and behaviors. We're not actually sad about the sin itself. See, the kind of mourning that Jesus is describing in verse 4 is what the Bible calls godly sorrow. It's a grief that comes from realizing that our sin wasn't just about us or against others, but it was in opposition to God himself. I've often talked about and described sin in this way. Sin is not just bad behaviors. Sin is a mutinous rebellion against God as king. It's an overthrowing of him as king and saying, God, I want to be king. I will remove you. I will put myself on the throne. John Stott helpfully writes this, the truth is that there are such things as Christian tears. Too few of us weep them. He says, I fear that as evangelicals, by making much of grace, sometimes we make light of sin. There's not enough sorrow for our sin among us. We should experience more godly grief. Jesus wept over the sins of others. Have we wept over our sins against him? Not just about their consequences, but about our rebellion against a good king. The promise to those who mourn is that they'll be comforted, and the only thing that comforts those who mourn over their sin is the incredible free forgiveness of King Jesus. It's his pardon. The kingdom of religion, in the kingdom of religion, the beatitude might read something like this. Blessed are those who beat themselves up enough for all their mistakes. Only then will God comfort them. In the kingdom of gospel, of the gospel, mourning is about acknowledging the weight of our sin against God and grieving over our rebellion, not about beating ourselves up for our sin. You see, Jesus was already willingly beaten and bruised on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. Verse 5 goes on to say that, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes that meekness is essentially a true view of ourselves expressed in our attitudes and our conduct in respect to others. It enables us to be honest with not just God about who we are, but with others about who we are. In the kingdom of the world, the beatitude might read, Blessed are the powerful and privileged who get what they want at any cost. They will inherit the earth. The world thinks that meek people get nowhere because everybody ignores them or runs over them. Not so in the pattern of Jesus' kingdom. Psalm 37 reads, Fret not yourselves because of the wicked. The meek will inherit the land. Those blessed by the Lord shall possess the land. Wait for him. Keep his ways. He will exalt you and possess the land. And you will look on the destruction of the wicked. Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. A hunger for the ways and the things of the Lord characterizes citizens of God's kingdom. If a, if a hunger and a thirst for the pursuit of the Lord is not evident in you, then that is like a good mark that you're not part of the kingdom yet. It's not about hungering and thirsting after a right standing with God. That's not what the, right, the righteousness that the passage is referring to. It's a hungering and thirsting after the ways of God. Not just to be declared righteous, but to live righteously. One of the best signs of the power of the kingdom, bringing about the pattern of the kingdom in your life, is your love and pursuit and longing for the Lord. 
The kingdom of the beatitude, uh, kingdom of the world, this beatitude might read something like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after whatever they think will satisfy them, for they'll be filled. In Jesus' kingdom, the pattern is to hunger and thirst for him. That's what fills the void that we all desperately are seeking to fill in our hearts. Verse 7, blessed are those who are merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Man, at first glance, doesn't that sound a whole lot like the kingdom of religion? If you do this, then I will do this. You've got to remember, the kingdom is present and it's future. The kingdom is talking to those who are already in the kingdom. God is not just sitting like a judge at the end of the age to see whether or not we will earn his mercy, whether or not we will have proven that we've earned it. But in Christ, we've been shown mercy, and through Christ, we are being made into people who reveal him and show mercy to others. One commentator writes this, to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners, but to be merciful is to have compassion on others because they are sinners too. John Piper writes, we're made new by the mercies of God. We're sanctified by his mercy. And when we get to judgment, God will say, you are still a sinner, but I see in your life the distinguishing fruit of my son, Jesus. Your mercy towards others is evidence of it. It reveals it. And it's for Christ's sake that I again will show you mercy. In the kingdom of the world, this beatitude might read something like this. Blessed are those who fend for themselves because everyone gets what they deserve. Not so in the kingdom. See, mercy is about not getting what we do deserve. And it's coupled or complemented with grace, which is about getting what we do not. God's gracious love and life and forgiveness. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pattern of Jesus' kingdom is concerned primarily with the heart because all of our actions and attitudes and behaviors flow from it, just like Aaron talked about this morning. It's not enough to clean up our act on the outside. Jesus is concerned with our actual hearts. This is a theme like that is pervasive throughout Jesus' great sermon. In the kingdom of religion, this, might, this beatitude might read something like this. Blessed are those whose lives look good on the outside, for God will be very impressed with them. Not so in the kingdom. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. God is a peacemaking God. He's made peace with us. And as his children, we are called to have the character of our Father, to live as he does. So similar to the Beatitude in, in the kingdom of uh, about meekness. And in verse 10 and following in 11 and 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things about you because of Jesus. Rejoice, greets your reward in heaven. See, in the kingdom of religion, the beatitude reads something like this. Blessed are the people who never suffer. Their lack of suffering shows that God is really pleased with them. Religion sees suffering as punishment, but the gospel sees suffering as an opportunity to become more like the king who suffered on our behalf. Jesus, in verses, these verses is saying, to the degree at which you see the reward waiting for you in heaven, not here, to the degree you see that and long for it, 
That's the degree that you'll be able to rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering. See, the pattern of the kingdom is good news because it reverses the kingdom of religion and it reverses the kingdom of the world. Jesus' kingdom turns everything on its head. One commentator writes, Such a reversal of human values appears topsy-turvy to men. God exalts the humble and abases the proud. He calls the first to be last, and the last first he ascribes greatness to the servant. He sends the rich away empty-handed and declares the meek to be his heirs. Jesus calls blessed those whom religion and the world most is ashamed of and most pities. Lastly, the kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom is good news, not just for those who are already citizens, but those who are outside the kingdom as well. The pattern of the kingdom doesn't just seem, the pattern of the kingdom doesn't always seem like good news to those who are outside of it. It doesn't make sense, but the product of the kingdom Man, that's enticing. Maybe you've seen that in the people of this church. Maybe you're figuring out who Jesus is to you and what it means for you to follow him or who he really is. And you've seen the pattern of the kingdom being lived out in the citizens of the kingdom, part of this church at River City. And you've experienced the product because you feel earnestly loved and welcomed and cared for and valued, not because of what you believe, but because you need Jesus just as much as every one of us does. The passage goes on to talk about the product of Jesus' kingdom and what it looks like in its citizens. It produces citizens who live as salt and light in the world. The Sermon on the Mount does not produce Christians who are secluded from the world, who are disengaged from it, like Man, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's no way that that could be true of a follower of Jesus, a, a member of his kingdom. Instead, we're to live as salt and light. Those are two things. They're not the same. They're complementary analogies that describe the influence of the citizens of God's kingdom on the world around us. It says, first, you are to be salt of the earth. Salt keeps things from rotting. That's the job of salt, especially in the ancient worlds, to keep things from rotting. It's a preservative. The, effect of, the effectiveness of salt is conditional on how salty it is. I'm not a chemistry major. In fact, I hated chemistry. Incredible. I burned my notes. I hated it so much after I graduated high school. I hated chemistry. Then I somehow had to take it again in college. Which, oh. Anyways, I don't know a lot about chemistry. What about it? I do know is that salt cannot become not salt. It's like the chemistry of that, it doesn't happen. Salt is like an incredibly stable thing. It doesn't change or become like non-salty. It, it's salt. But salt does become impure. And when it's mixed with impurities, it is worthless and useless to accomplish the purpose it's set out to do. So what is Jesus saying? Is, did he like totally misunderstand chemistry even though he created it and all that stuff? No. What he's saying is that the effectiveness of salt means it must be pure. So what is the saltiness of those who are in the kingdom. Well, it's the good news of the kingdom lived in the face of the kingdoms of religion and the world. Just as salt has to be salty to be effective in preserving its food, Christians must be taking our Christ-likeness if we are to be effective in halting the, the, like the evil in our society and in our world. Our ability to affect the world around us is dependent on us being distinct from the world, not being like it. The passage goes on to describe 
the role of citizens in the kingdom is to be lights in the world. Our lives as citizens of the kingdom should shine like a bright light in the dark kingdoms of religion and the world. You're probably tired of hearing Emma's stories, but I have another one. Uh, Emma's been learning a twinkle, twinkle, little star. And uh, the words change every time when we sing it. In fact, I'm I'm trying to remember what they actually are, right? But um, if you remember the song, you remember that it goes, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. See, our lives should cause a curiosity and a wonder in those not yet in the kingdom the way a twinkling star causes wonder in the heart of a child. What is that? Why is it so beautiful? What is happening? Do our lives make those not yet a part of the kingdom what we are? Do our lives invoke a curiosity about the pattern and the power and the product of the kingdom? They should. It's part of our calling as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. The function of salt is largely negative. It prevents decay. But the function of light is positive because it illuminates the darkness. One commentator writes this, Jesus calls citizens of his kingdom to exert a double influence on those living in the kingdoms of religion and the world. A negative influence by arresting its decay and a positive influence by bringing light into the darkness. For it is one thing to stop the spread of evil. It is another entirely to promote the spread of the truth. Man, I hope you've seen the pattern of the kingdom is good news. The good news of the kingdom that the Beatitudes proclaim is about what is true of us and what is and about what is becoming true of us. It is the reversal of the kingdoms of religion and the world, and it radically changes the way that we relate to God and the way we relate to those not yet a part of his kingdom. See, the good news of the kingdom found in the Beatitudes is not a to-do list. It is a list that is already done. You see, Jesus was the only one who actually lived the pattern of the kingdom perfectly. He's the only one about whom the proclamation of those who are blessed is true, both present and future, actually. Jesus is the only one who actually deserved the rewards that are promised in the Beatitudes. And as Tim Keller writes so powerfully, he says, Jesus, who was merciful, did not receive mercy. Instead, he was condemned. And Jesus, though he was pure in heart, did not see God. Instead, God turned his face on him. (sighs) Jesus, who was meek, did not inherit the earth. Instead, he was disenfranchised. And Jesus, who hungered and thirsted after righteousness, he wasn't filled. Instead, he was emptied out. Sorry. 
The question is why, right? Though he was meek, he didn't receive his inheritance so that you and I who are not meek would. Though he was pure in heart, he didn't see God so that you and I who are not would. Though he was merciful, he didn't receive mercy. (laughs) So we would. (laughs) I hope you see it's good news to me. Jesus is saying that he's fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount. And all he deserved, he gave to us. The pattern of the kingdom is not possible for us to live. Jesus did. He was perfect on our behalf. So it's through his power that we, we live as he calls us to live, not endlessly trying to measure up to the pattern and failing, but endlessly seeking to live in the pattern to honor the king who lived it for us. That's good news. <sighs> All right, let's bring us home, Okay. <laughs> For the disciples listening to the Beatitudes, there are words of celebration about how blessed they are. But there are also the words about how God is at work in them to make those things actually true of them. For the crowds listening in, the good news of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, they're not true of them yet, but they are an invitation. They're an invitation that they would be made true of them. It's an invitation that the crowd has to accept. It's an invitation we all have to accept. You can't see the kingdom as good news. You can still see the kingdom as good news, but be outside of it. We cannot just acknowledge the truth that the kingdom is good news. We have to accept the kingdom as good news and live in it. Maybe you've been hanging around this community and you've been seeing the kingdom lived out among, you, among us. And you've been uh, seeing God doing some work in your own heart. And you've seen the gospel at work and really beginning to change what you think and how you feel and how you relate to God. But you need to ask God to give you a new heart. You need to accept his kingdom. You need to ask that he would give you a heart that is poor in spirit, that acknowledges how much you need him. He's the thing that you need. He is the cure. He is the remedy. He is the antidote for the sickness of our hearts. We need to, you need to mourn over your sin, not just about the consequences of our actions and attitudes and behaviors, but about our rebellion against God, a good king and father who loved us. And you need to ask Jesus to be your king. You cannot have the kingdom without the kingly rule of the king himself. You cannot have the kingdom of God without the king himself. 
You need to ask that the king might bring about in your heart and in your life the pattern of his kingdom. Man, my heart is that you'd ask him to do it. He longs to. He's so faithful to do it if you would ask him. Man, I pray that today like might be that day for some of you. And you might say yes to his kingdom and live in light of it. Be made new because of it. Have the blessings of the kingdom proclaimed about you and be enacted within you. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks most of all for your son, Jesus. God, we're so grateful that Beatitudes are not a checklist of things we must do, but they're like a proclamation of the incredibly good news about who we are in Jesus. Thank you, God, that we don't just... We aren't just proclaimed right with you, but you are making us live righteously with you by your power and by your strength and by your word. God, and so we lay our lives down at your feet as citizens of your kingdom, and we say, God, use us as you see fit. Make much of yourself. Make much of your name. God, and I long that those who are seeking, those who are searching for your kingdom and searching for you, that they would see your open invitation to become a part of it. God, give them hearts that can see their need for you and that can mourn over their sin. God, and give them a heart that longs to, to, to enthrone you as the king instead of themselves. God, the gospel is such good news. Your kingdom is such good news. God, remind us of its good news every day. Amen.